I'm just interested to know whether, as sort of being family together, whether, whether there is a moment where you go, actually, this has been my biggest challenge this week, or this has been my biggest joy. Remember that thing I asked you to think about <laughs> about four hours ago? Um, yeah, I just wondered, is this stuff that is worth sharing together? Here we are, the body of Christ. Oh, well, actually, yeah, you know, apparently, Ian, you've got something to share. <laughs> um, once Ian's finished, could you find... No. <laughs> Biggest challenge, getting up and facing the world. Biggest joy, getting up and facing the world. Good. Someone else, what's your biggest challenge and or your biggest joy this week? What have you faced? Yeah, there's Nev down there. Uh, so biggest challenge, was uh, there's a lot going on at work. I've, uh, I've got switched from one project to two projects, but I've got about six things on the go all coming up. So that was a big, big challenge. Uh -huh. And then biggest joy was being with my grandchildren yesterday. Brilliant day. Lovely, perfect day. Brilliant. Someone else, what was your biggest challenge, your biggest joy? Uh, biggest challenge, working for a Christian organisation and realising not everybody's like us. I.e. Um, perfect. <laughs> um, and biggest joy was Friday afternoon, seeing, um, I don't know if I mentioned it before, Kemp, but there was only five children there who had connections already with our church. The mm. other, however many makes up to 13, um, were not, <laughs> uh, you know, part of our family at the moment. Brilliant. Your mum and dad are so proud of you. <laughs> Thank you. Someone else, what's your biggest challenge, Joy? The biggest challenge um, this week was feeling that the journey is just too hard and too long. Mm -hmm. But then going to a church on Friday when a Brazilian pastor spoke on uh, Elijah when the angel tapped him on the side and said, eat and drink because the journey is too great for you. Okay. And that so was you amazing. kind of felt God spoke to you directly. Good. Someone else? Yeah? There's... Um, the greatest joy I had, and uh, we went to um, Anglesey to meet Mark and May, and we had the most beautiful three days. Um, it was lovely fellowshipping with them. And on the Tuesday night, we had the most fantastic prayer time. It was just so beautiful. The Lord was there. The, the Holy Spirit was there, and it was just so gracious. But one of the other, and, and the other joy was making it to the forgiveness um, meeting on Wednesday night as well, after a long journey, thanks to Jill's um, driving. Absolutely fantastic. Brilliant. There's, there's Jill down this end as well, if you... Maybe just a couple more. Um, I've been given a year 11 class, which just has 13 kids in it, but every single one of them has come into this year believing that they can't pass English and that they have just given up on themselves. <coughs> um, but I've been teaching them for three weeks. I've got one who still won't be changed in that opinion. Um, but on Friday, one of them walked out of the room uh, saying, I believe I can pass English because of you. And that was amazing. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, for me, the biggest challenge this week has been that I've had an operation on my knee. And I'm doubting if it's actually worked. 
and I'm trying to keep positive. And I've not not been to church for a couple of weeks, really, really, re- really, because of my knee. Um, and then we had home group, our first home group of the new session on Thursday, and I've just felt really, really, really encouraged. And our new study we're doing is on heaven. And even in the first study, we're like we're um, thinking and seeing how great it will be when we all get to heaven. Um, Good. And that's that's very encouraging. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, just get in line. <laughs> <laughs> you don't get preferential treatment because you sit at the front. So, I've been told my kids are meant to be one of my greatest joy. But they're definitely my greatest <laughs> challenge today. So fortunately, a very good friend's house on Thursday. We were sat chatting, and then suddenly water starts dripping down, the light fitting in the hall, and I realised Peter had recently been to the toilet upstairs, <laughs> and he managed to leave the tap onto the sink with the soap stuck in the plug hole. So was your greatest joy that that wasn't your house? <laughs> well, probably. I, I think her husband was probably more gracious about it than okay. Charlie might have been with his new, recently decorated. Mm. So, but fortunately, it hasn't caused that much damage. I found out, but yeah, okay. that definitely. Listen, was a challenge. Do you know the the, the truth is um, that having children is challenging. <laughs> this is not new news. Um. But, but what we need to tell each other sometimes is, do you know what? It's not always easy. It's not always. You don't sail through this stuff. I remember um, someone saying to me, uh, so when my when ours were, were sort of little, someone said to me, <laughs> he was a Christian, but he said, he said when they're young, he said, you, you pray that they're really going to be on fire for God. He said, and then your prayers change a bit. He said, you just pray that by 16 they're not pregnant. And that by... <laughs> And they're by 18, they're not in prison. And um, because <laughs> he'd really struggled, he'd really struggled with his own kids. And uh, I, I do want to say, and, and thanks for being willing to say it, Kate. I just want to say that as a body of Christ together, one of the best ways we help one another is to help shoulder the challenge of bringing up our own children. Because the truth is, sometimes parents are not the people who find it the easiest to have the conversations about the most important things. And actually, other people can have that conversation. And other people can have that web of support. And so, yeah, I just want to sort of, I don't know, really just affirm that really and say, do you know what I mean? Just because you're finding it challenging, don't say you're doing a rubbish job. Just because you find it challenging, don't say you're doing a rubbish job. And actually, what we need together is to say, we're going to help you together to do this because it's it takes more than a family to create people <laughs> yeah it's like Roseanne do you remember Roseanne she got into awful trouble recently but do you remember in, in days gone by uh, she used to have a program on TV a, a comedy an American comedy and her husband came in at the end of the day and he said uh, good day darling and she said I'm alive the kids are alive it's a great day <laughs> anyway all of that I think there were two more. I think there was Andrew, and then there was Shirley, who was a little impatient. <laughs> and then we'll move. Um, a challenge for me, and it lasted actually a bit over a week, was I've been praying recently, and while praying, a 
had an urge to tell this couple that I know that I love them. I'll <laughs> um, <and laughs> like, get you into awful trouble, Andrew. Yeah, I know. Um, and it was just a bit weird because I just like thought, how do I how do I broach this? And and it's not really my bag. Um, so uh, the challenge was that I kept putting it off and putting it off, but the more I prayed, it just kept coming back. So eventually, I sent them a, a text. <laughs> uh, just said, yeah, so, that's that's not going to be misunderstood. Um, so, <laughs> sounds a bit weird. This guy's been praying, and every time I do, you pop in my head, and I need to tell you that I love you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but the response uh, was brilliant as well. So we were all really open. We had a really nice conversation about challenges that they're facing um, at the moment, and. Um, just then opening up and saying, no, if you need anything, I'm there for you. So kind of the response was really cool. But it was it was nerve-wracking to actually open up in the first place. Fantastic. Fantastic. Just the willingness to, to go on the hunch of what you think God might be saying to you. Absolutely brilliant. And then by no means least, but definitely last. <laughs> uh, we were away last weekend, and... <laughs> It was, a, it was a bit of a challenge for me, and I, I, I just asked God should I do it. I was talking to this lady, and she was in a wheelchair, and she'd got MS and MD. And she said, she just said three or four words to me that made me really shiver. She said, I haven't stood up for 11 years. And, and I thought, right, do I ask you, can I pray with her? And I just asked, you know, was it all right if I... And she let me. And it was just a lovely time together. Mm. Um, and again, it was in the same place, the joy. <laughs> there was... Uh, we were in a hotel in, in Cumbria, uh, and there was this huge noise, and there was motorbikes. 51 bikers from Northern Ireland. Not Northern Ireland. Northern <laughs> Ireland, yeah. <laughs> and that just listen to the... <laughs> and they asked me, <laughs> I got talking to one of them, just, you know, asking them where they were from, who they were. And they're a sort of a, a charity group that, you know, does a lot of work. And they asked me to go and sit with them. So I'm stuck there with 51 <laughs> Irish bikers. <laughs> now, that was the joy. It was okay, I think we're... <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to go into any more details. No more details, please. <laughs> um... A few weeks ago, I had an incident in hospital. I had two strokes. I couldn't string two words together for weeks, and now I'm speaking more or less properly, but my memory's not come back yet. But I share the joy that the Lord has brought me through it. Good. Can we have the slide up at you? These challenges and joys of normal life, of the things that um, the Lord asks of us and the things we get involved with and the things that we find actually when we do, new possibilities open up. Whether it's praying for someone and then them say, and, and feeling, I've got to tell you, I love you. And the awkwardness of that, and I think we all understand the awkwardness, but then a new possibility opens up. The idea of meeting someone who's a stranger and asking, can I pray for you? And the new possibilities that are there. We've come to the end of uh, Acts and we've been reading through it pretty much, not exactly chapter by chapter, but certainly chunk by chunk. And we get to the end of the story. And what I want to do is think about what does it take 
to finish well. What does it take to finish the journey well? Because here we are at the end of Luke's story, of course, the beginning of the rest of the story, but it's the end of Luke's story. And it's the end of Paul's story. And we followed Paul, Luke has followed Paul from midway through the book of Acts. It's almost like in the first part of the book of Acts, he tells the story of Peter and James and the churches, but then he sort of narrows down into Paul and Paul becomes a focus. It's almost like Paul becomes a symbol of the growing church. Some people wonder whether actually Luke wrote Acts almost as a defense of Paul. Maybe he needed to defend him. I'm not sure. But certainly Paul, this energetic, intelligent, um, courageous man, becomes a symbol of the church and what God is doing. And it's kind of interesting when we read the chapter then to see, well, how, how will it end? So let's read the chapter together. And then I want to say three things that are really quite straightforward, I think, about what we've read. You will remember last week when Susie was preaching, she read the passage and she preached the passage about the shipwreck. Do you remember Paul's always had this desire to get to Rome to preach the gospel? It's kind of like the heart of the empire and almost, you know, if you're, and from the beginning I've said if he could get to Rome then the message would get to the rest of the world. It's just that I don't think Paul really ever expected that the way he would get to Rome would be by being a prisoner. But that's how he ends up getting to Rome. So he's been sort of on trial. He's, he's been um, with guards and he's on the way to be tried by Caesar. And in the midst of it, he gets on that shipwreck and they survive the shipwreck remarkably. But they... Um, as a result of that shipwreck, the, the, the sort of they, they flow, <laughs> they manage to get onto Malta. And that's where the story picks up. So they're in the Mediterranean, and um, the, the ship's gone down, but the people are saved, and they get to Malta. One safely on shore. We found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and they welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. And when the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. Two things going on there. They sort of, in their own way of thinking, they go, If this guy's been shipwrecked, it's because the gods have been angry with him. And now... The snake's attached himself to him. He's definitely, definitely cursed by the gods. Verse 5. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and he showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was ill in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer, he placed his hands on him and he healed him. When this had happened, the rest of those on the island who were ill came and were cured. They honoured us in many ways 
And when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. And after three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there, we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day, the south wind came up. And on the following day, we reached Petulia. Uh, that's wrong, but it's close enough. Petu, anyway, it doesn't matter. There we found some believers who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. The believers there had heard that we were coming and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. And at the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. And when we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. And when they'd assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I've done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly didn't intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I've asked to see you and talk with you. It's because of the hope of Israel that I'm bound with this chain. And they replied, we've not received any letters from Judea concerning you. None of our people have come from there as reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are. For we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day. And they came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, others wouldn't believe. They disagreed amongst themselves and they began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you'll be ever hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving for this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there on his, in his own rented house, welcomed all who came to see him. And he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The story began at the beginning of Acts, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, where Jesus says to his disciples, wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes, and when the Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem here. You'll be my witnesses in Judea, in your own country. You'll be my witnesses in Samaria, that next part of uh, the world, unto the ends of the earth. The Spirit will catapult you out. You will be my witnesses. And Luke has told the story of the church and every sort of turn and twist along the way about the healings and the life that has been given, about the internal problems and squabbles amongst this new church, about the external pressures, about how the gospel sounds in different cultures when you're with new people. What does it sound like when you, uh, uh, with people who hold to the Old Testament? What does it sound like when you've only got people who have the stories of the Greeks? And people have accepted that good news. And here we are at the end. And it's Paul. 
How do you keep going? How do you keep going? It's like Mark said. How do you keep going on the week or in the week where you go, I think the road's too hard and I think the road's too long. And it would seem to be easier just to give up. Now, sometimes God might well send someone to speak directly into that and you're just coincidentally in the right place. But actually, how do you keep going? Well, three things I want to say about, particularly about Paul. One is that Paul knew that he'd been defined by Jesus. One of the things I've said a number of times, I'm conscious of having said it, is that when Luke writes this story of the church, he tells the story of Paul's conversion three times. It's kind of interesting because each time he's using it in a certain way because it's being told in a certain context. Way back in Acts 22, um, Paul is telling his story in front of Agrippa, the king, and, the, uh, and Festus, one of the governors. And he said, this is what happened when Ananias came to me. I was blinded on the road to Damascus. I fell, but Ananias came and he explained to me what had happened when I'd met Jesus? Then he, Ananias, this early disciple, told me, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and hear him speak. For you are to be his witness, telling everyone what you've seen and heard. What are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. Have your sins washed away by calling on the name of the Lord. That's how Paul's life began. Someone came and said, there's three things that's happened that God actually wants for you. God wants you to know his will. God wants you to see the righteous one. And Ananias was using Jewish language to talk about Jesus. God wants you to hear him speak. That's a remarkable set of things. It's not about you belonging to some sort of religion, but actually God wants this relationship with you. God wants you, Paul, so you might know what he would want of you. Paul, God wants you to see Jesus. God, uh, Paul, God wants you to hear him. You've been set apart to do something. I think that this is how Paul's story works. I don't think Paul's story is supposed to be the story. It's not like that for everybody. But I think there's elements of Paul's story that Luke thinks are so important that three times he tells you the story. And this is the bit that I think, or one of the bits that I think is important, is that when Paul met Jesus, or better, when Jesus met Paul, Paul realized, I have one thing to do with my life. This is my life. I've got one thing. I know what I'm called to. Now, it would take him ages to work it out, but he had a life defined by Jesus, and he knew what God had called him to do. And for Paul, that was to be a preacher, a church planter, um, particularly amongst the Jewish areas and then out to the Gentiles. That's Paul's story. But actually, if there's anything from his story that I would want, I'd want to emphasize, it's this, that when you know Jesus, when you come and know Jesus, it's not that he helps you with your existing ambition, but he says, actually, I want to use you now. This is what your life is about. And I reckon... I reckon 
there's probably two or three things that you've been called to do that you mustn't let go of. It'll be about a certain group of people you need to work with or a certain way you are or a certain sort of context in which you're called. And your situation will keep on changing, but I think it's actually what you were made for. And I, I, I've got a feeling that part of the art of life is growing into what has God called you to. So that when you're sort of younger, it's kind of like you try everything, don't you? Just naturally. My biggest, the birthday that actually was the, the worst birthday was my 30th birthday. And it was a sort of like a little bit of an existential angst. Well, kind of past it, although I've always managed to deal with that because I always think, actually, I'm only halfway. <laughs> I'm going to live to 108 at the moment. Um, but no, it was the, the, angst, the angst was this. In my 20s, I felt I could just be trying a whole stack of things. Nobody would expect you to be any good at anything. But when I got to 30, I thought, oh, flip. People might expect me to be good at at least one thing. And it felt like, actually, and that, and that, I was kind of like joking, but actually, there was that sense of, do you know what you're supposed to be about now? The 20s were like great, because you were like just mucking about a bit, really. But when you were 30, what is it really you're supposed to do? And I do wonder whether actually part of this life that we live is working out, why are you on the earth I mean, if that's not too depressing a thought for some of you this morning, because it may be something I thought that myself this morning. But, but why are you here? Why are you here? What has God made you to be? You're not going to be good at everything, and you mustn't even begin to try. You are not going to be successful at everything you put your hand to. But there's something about the way that God has made you. There's something about the gifts that God has given you. There's something about the way he's formed you over the years that actually you go, I know why I'm here. This is what God has asked of me. This is the sort of person I am. And it's not arrogance, though it's sometimes a good idea to ask someone else if they think that. You know, I might actually feel that God has placed me here just to sing to crowds of people in stadiums all around the world. I need someone to get alongside me and go, back in the real world, Neil. <laughs> I need, I, we need one another to go, well, that's, that might be what you would want to do, but actually I think what you've been created to do is this. Some of you have been created to lead. It's kind of like when you look back at childhood, even, you were the... You were the one that was always picking the teams. And it wasn't just because you owned the ball. Some of you. It's kind of like no matter where you get into it, it always feels like people look to you. Some of you have always been collectors. We were at uh, someone's 50th wedding yesterday and they said, uh, they, <laughs> the, the woman said, she said, some people have a, a hobby of collecting stamps. She said, my hobby is collecting people. And she does. She has this network of relationships that she can manage really well and she's just constantly encouraging and getting alongside people. Some, some of you are like that and you've always been like that. Some of you are teachers. It's almost like, regardless of the context, you always go into that. Some of you are just encouragers, etc., etc., etc. 
And the arrogance of life is not saying, I'm the greatest at this. It's just saying, I know I am here. And I can own this. And I know what I'm not good at. And I can own that as well. You don't need to be good at everything. And you don't need to be insecure about what you're not good at. You need to be constantly confident in the way God has made you. Because the things that he got a hold of you for, when you were saved, it wasn't that you would just go to heaven. He saved you in order that he might use you for his purpose here. If it was only about getting saved so you could get away from hell and get to heaven, you would have been better just dying at that moment. You weren't saved just to go to heaven. God says, I'm going to use you in this context. I know that's quite a big thing. But actually the joy comes when you know what it is. The challenge is doing it. The joy is knowing what it is. I know what sort of person I am. And, I, and you're blessed indeed if you can do that all the time. But some of you can't do it all the time. The thing you're created for, you can only do some of the time, but actually you've got to do it. And that's what Paul found on, the, on that road. Ananias came and said, you... You, you're to be his witness. That's the job you've got, Paul. That's why he gave up everything else. The second thing about Paul is he didn't give up. He doesn't give up on the Jewish people. I was reading through this chapter as I was preparing for this morning. And you, you get there and you think, oh, here we go. Another speech to Jewish people who Paul... We've read these speeches all the way through Acts now. They haven't taken a blind bit of notice of you. Why didn't you, way back, decide, I've had it with you? And the reason Paul doesn't say, I've had it with you, is because they're his people. It's his family. And when Paul writes in Romans and tries to work out what has God done with the Jews and what's he doing with the Gentiles? 9 to 11 are three fairly complicated chapters, to be honest. But three chapters to try and work out. Has God just finished with the Jews? My people, Paul will say. My people, my family. Has God finished with them? And Paul will say, God has not finished with my family. Whatever happens next, he's not finished with my family. And it's kind of like towards all the way through his life, Paul doesn't finish. He never gives up on them. These are, some of these people have stoned him. Some of these people have spread malicious gossip about him. Some of these people have meant that he's had to escape cities in the middle of the night. Some of these people have stirred up so much trouble for him that he's had to go in front of courts. Some of these people have absolutely been, they've made themselves his enemy. He has never said, I give up on you. How do you finish well? Don't give up on the people you're called to. Don't give up on those who love you, on, on, on those you love. Give them time, give them space, give them love, but don't give them up. And I know that some of us are praying for people, and you'll be praying and praying and praying. Don't stop. Don't give up. These are my people. This is my place. I'm not going to give up. 
defined by Jesus, I know I'm here, determined not to give up, doesn't give up. And then finally, he is determined to the end. When we got to Rome in verse 16, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. And then the last two verses of the book of Acts, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and he welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Paul was determined despite his limitations. There's a moment in Paul. What would it have been like to be Paul? For Paul, for the last, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years, Paul has spent all his life with his bag packed. He's like Michael Palin. Never in one place. The longest he stays in one place is three years. Mostly, then after that, the, sh- the sort of longest place he stays is 18 months. Paul normally is on the move. But now, he isn't. He's not allowed. He's limited by his circumstances. It would be easy to be Paul and go, well, I've done my bit. You know that I I sort of see a lot of churches in a lot of different contexts around the country. And um, sometimes when I I go to some churches, um, the older people will say to me, and when I'm doing seminars and stuff, they'll say, we've done our bit. We've done our bit. It's, it's the rest of them now. And I kind of understand what they mean. But there's a bit of me, that's, a large bit of me, that's quite concerned with that. It's almost like you get to a stage in life where you go, my limitations now mean I have nothing more to offer. When we were praying before the service this morning, I was uh, talking about what we are going to preach about. If this is no good, by the way, it's Corinne and Val's fault because they were praying. <laughs> just want to say that. Um, and we were talking about, um, I think even as a, you know, when I was a, a really young pastor, I think like many younger men, particularly perhaps, you kind of, it was easy to write older people off. And the thing that helped me stop doing that was actually coming to the church in Salford. There was a time when uh, we moved out of a building down on Liverpool Street. And um, it wasn't an easy decision to make in some ways. Um, in some ways it was a relief, but in other ways it was actually a really difficult decision to make. But one of the things I remember was some of the old people, people like Walter Crosby who was in his 70s then, this is 20 years ago. And the older people stood and spoke to the younger people and said, folks, you've got nothing to fear. We've been here before. You can move. And God will still be with you. The best days are ahead. And Walter, and some of you will remember Walter. Walter used to greet people on the door. And sometimes he used to give you, it's like a, a wrestling hold. But Walter was faithful to the church for many years. But I remember him saying, he said, I might not actually get to this place where you're all going to end up. But you need to know you've got to go for it. There was a man who had prostate cancer at that time, I think. Um, and determined that his limitations was not going to define him. And Paul's in prison, under house arrest rather. So what does Paul do? He welcomes people. He can't go to them anymore, but he welcomes them. And every day he teaches them about the Lord Jesus Christ with boldness and without hindrance. 
In the same way, as you were not called in order simply to go to heaven, there is never a moment, I know this is a truism, but there's never a moment where God says, well, what do you think I can do with you? <laughs> and your limitations happen at all stages of life. Some of you who are, you know, we talked about it, when you're wrestling with toddlers and your brain's all foggy because you're not sleeping properly. That feels like a limitation. <laughs> when your knee's done and you're not sure whether it's actually healed properly, is a limitation. When you get to older age and actually you just don't have the energy that you once had, is a limitation. When you have a stroke and speech is not always that easy, although it is brilliant to hear you come back, but you said, Pauline, about your memory just not being as sharp as you would have wanted it to be. There's never a moment where God says, well, because you've had a stroke and because your memory is gone, and because speech is not that quick, I can't do anything with you. There's never a moment where God says that to you. He's always been with you and he still wants to use you. You might be in a workplace where you go, do you know what, this is killing me. And you can blame so many things on why you can't do what you'd love to do. And Paul, at the end of his life, says, I might be limited, but I'm determined. So here's my question. What's going to keep you going? For Paul, I think it was clear, defined by Jesus, he knew why he was on earth. Refused to give up on the people that he knew he'd been called to. Refused to accept the fact that the limitations would define him. The man who was called on the Damascus Road as a relatively, in their context, relatively middle-aged man and would live the last half, maybe, of his life for the sake of the church who would end up being killed by an emperor in a wave of persecution, never said, I'm done. And that's how the book ends. But I think as I said last week or the week before, it ends in that way and then like a relay race, you pass the baton. And the question is, will you run? And will you run in such a way that when your day comes, when you do see the Lord, you've passed the baton on? That's kind of part of what was behind that idea of praying for the children's workers. Who knows what will happen with all those children and young people? What lives they will lead, what potential we will see. But actually, that, that's part of the baton you pass on. Every time you share the gospel, what you're doing is you're passing the baton on to someone else who might be part of the kingdom, who will run further and faster than you did. What will keep you going? Judith and her team at Stay and Play passes the gospel baton to a whole set of new families and goes, this gospel is worth 
running with? What will keep you going? I'm going to ask the musicians to come back, if you will. And I think I'd like to, uh, I think I'd like us to make some sort of response to some of the ideas. I don't know if they kind of made sense, but there were one or two of you nodding, which makes me think at least two of those sentences made sense. Perhaps, Lawrence, you just play for a bit. And let that question just be the question that you kind of live with for a moment. What will keep you going? Maybe for some this morning it's like, I don't know if I've ever really discovered why I'm on earth. You've got a whole stack of things you do, but what am I here to do? And for some of you it's kind of like, Lord, what will keep me going is if I know what you're asking of me. If you know, if I know, if I can be confident in who you've made me. And that, so that even if the situations change, I know what I'm here for. Some of you, what will keep you going is just a dogged persi- a persistence that says, I'm not going to give up on the people you've called me to. what will keep you going no more excuses about your limitations but a determined way to say how do I minister how do I function how do I live in the midst of the limitations I have maybe as you play you just take some time to think and pray Make your own response.